thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. One of Jesus' most graphically expressed proverbs, quoted here in the King James Bible version of St. Matthew's Gospel, has divided opinions over 2,000 years. How practical is his advice? Especially the less familiar second verse with its invitation to surrender when faced with legal challenge. The German philosopher Nietzsche, for one, disliked what he saw as the excessive passivity of Christianity. But turn the other cheek is our subject this week. Perhaps Jesus' invocation was at one level simply a way of recognising the problem caused by human aggression. In a Naked Scientist Q&A, Emma Pomeroy invoked such thoughts when she answered a question about the Neanderthals. We can be very compassionate and nice, but we can do nasty things to each other as well. And... There are arguments that, you know, we were involved in extinction of Neanderthals, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally. Perhaps the Neanderthals simply turned the other cheek. Joining me this week are two Naked Reflections contributors with form. Tim Stevens, who served as Bishop of Leicester, previously worked in East London and actually spent a little bit of time in government. And welcome back also to Miriam Kalachi of St Hilda's College, Oxford. In 2010, Maryam famously published a book about the Armenian genocide, which consisted entirely of blank pages. This whole question of passivity is something that's quite close to my heart, because I remember one of the first difficult conversations I had at Cambridge was with a chaplain at Wesley House, Ernst Goodrich, about pacifism. Ernst and I had this very intense conversation about the Second World War. I'm Jewish. I couldn't understand how anyone could be a pacifist in the face of the rise of anti-Semitism in the Second World War, Nazism, and of course, the Holocaust. You've done and dealt with, with genocide as well, so I'm sure you've thought about this. But you said something very interesting before the show kicked off, and that was about the active nature of pacifism. I wonder if you can just unpack that for us. 
Um, yeah, hi. Um, well, thanks for the invitation again. It's lovely to be back in the studio. Um, well, first of all, I think I want to talk a little bit about pacifism. It's not just a label that you slap on, right? It's really something um, that you actively engage in thought and, of course, then also how you lead your life. So it's not like that you know, I woke up one morning saying I'm a pacifist, but it's more like okay, what does pacifism stand for? And why is this for me a way of life? So active pacifism, what I mean by that is that you are actively, in, you know, thinking about what it means to be a pacifist, but also that you find solutions. So it's not just opposing war. I'm not an armchair champagne drinking pacifist, but I'm actually thinking, okay, war or the use of outward weapons, as we say in the religious society of France, is not something that we, we condone, but that doesn't mean that I can't be present in conflict. So one of the examples that you just alluded to were the Quakers, the friends in Nazi Germany, who said, that, okay, we are confronted with one of the biggest evils we will probably see in our lifetime or probably the world will see in its existence. But what are we going to do opposing Hitler? So one of the things that friends did um, really famously, um, they basically... In Berlin, they they looked at um, at the trains and they knew that the trains were going to Auschwitz or were bringing away um, their Jewish friends. And they went there and said, would you like to give a last letter to your family and we can deliver it? And this was called Brieftauben. Quakers were basically then delivering the letters back from those Jewish friends who were basically destined to uh, to be killed, brought them back to the families. It's really interesting you shared that with me because I'm going to share something with you which I've never shared with the listeners, was that my mother was born, in, both my parents were born in Vienna. My mother came over in the kinder transport mm -hmm. um, and it was a Quaker woman who brought her over. So that's another example of active action in the face of evil and still being a pacifist, but in this case bringing six Jewish children from Vienna exactly. to uh, London. Tim, Miriam sort of mentioned the pacifism as a response to human aggression. Do you see the principle, the concept, the metaphor of turning the other cheek as simply an antidote to the, uh, the same? I think turning the other cheek is uh, part of it. It's the whole point of resisting, recycling violence in a constant spiral that human beings find it very difficult to get out of. And in that sense, I think it is counterintuitive uh, in many ways, but I think it's also counter-tribalist. And I think in that sense, the Christian tradition of, of nonviolence is almost counter-evolutionary, that actually our flourishing, our growth, our survival and our well-being depend not on doing down the other guys over there, but on not recycling the animosity between us and them and identifying ourselves constantly as the other. So I think turning the other cheek is a requirement in all that. I completely agree with Miriam, her point about pacifism being an active process rather than just a passive one. And it seems to me that pacifism is about taking action to remove the injustices and the causes of conflict. And I think, you know, names that come to mind would, would of course, be Gandhi and Martin Luther King and, and many others who I think would have said the same thing. 
I mean, often when we think about pacifism, it's about weapons, right? It's very easy for us to say no to weapons. But I think pacifism also includes economic exploitation, things that, for example, Quakers were very famous about abolition and slavery and things like that. And I think in the foundation, really, there is this idea that there is a shared human condition or there is a shared human uh, humanity that we, as pacifists, put at the core of our thinking. That means that, okay, I might, in an example of war, me against another national, let's say, me as a German or a Turk against a French person. That would mean that I will fight against a nation state. As a pacifist, though, I would take the stand, no, this is another human being. So that's why if I die in this conflict, I will die for a shared humanity rather than for my nation state, right? So this is uh, something that comes out from what Tim has just said. Um, but I think our economic violence that we commit on a daily basis, I think, is also very, very important when we talk about turning the other cheek because often we, we are turning away our eyes from a reality that exists in our world. What do you think, Tim? I agree with that. Of course I do. And I was thinking as you spoke that an extreme form, I suppose, of economic violence is the exploitation of the environment. Exactly. Because, um, you know, we know that millions and millions and millions of people are going to lose their livelihoods, lose their land, lose their way of life, lose their identity, and quite possibly lose their lives. So that is a form of violence, which is not conducted by picking up weapons, but it's conducted by all the things we know about and by entrenched ways of life and values that people are very reluctant to examine and to revisit. But uh, I think you can say that pacifism reads off directly into opposition to the causes of escalating climate change and all its devastating consequences for the human race. So look, the far be it from me to be the troublemaker in the conversation with my two panellists who are agreeing with each other, but they both know me well enough that I can't put up with this. So come on. It's all well and good saying, and I accept the fact that exploitation uh, is not just physical, it's economic. Um, We're talking about the violence, not just in terms of military violence, but in terms of other forms of oppression. Okay, I get that. But you know what? Sometimes pacifism just doesn't work, right? Can Can I just put it out there? That sometimes you just need to stand up and say, this is not on. And let me give you an example, both of you, from your own tradition. That is Jesus turning the table over in the temple. That was not a pacifist act. Right. That was actually a a very, I wouldn't want to say violent act, but it symbolized violence. It was an attempt to overturn the order of that time. Uh, Or am I just being churlish? I think you're making a valiant attempt to stimulate argument. And I'm happy to um, to rise to the bait, because while I think the discussion we were having on pacifism is important, and I think Miriam and I are on the same page on that, I'm not sure that I am a pacifist. I'm not, I'm not sure that I would go so far as to argue that the pacifism that we've been discussing and the Judeo-Christian tradition necessarily amounts to an argument for uh, never taking up weapons and never being prepared to use violence under any circumstances. So I think that is complicated. We know that the Hebrew Bible is full of vengeful material Uh, and often paints a picture of a disgruntled, angry, vengeful God. Now, in the great sweep of history, I would argue, as a Christian minister, that the story is one of a people gradually discovering 
that that is not the whole truth about God and coming to a, a much a much larger picture of God as merciful, as God of forgiving, and a God who requires us to forgive each other. But I don't think that amounts to saying there are no circumstances in which it is just to take up arms against others. Uh, and, of course, as in response to that, Christians have developed the just war theory, haven't they, the, and tried to spell out the conditions in which it might be morally justifiable to do that. I think if I think of about Ukrainians un, under a barrage of appalling violence, as far as I can see, completely unjustified. Does the pacifist argue that they must simply take it, that they must not defend their families and their country? I think there's a very, very strong argument for saying there are conditions in which it is right to do that. I, of course, would disagree because um, if I wouldn't disagree, I think I would also have to be removed from the membership of the Society <laughs> of Friends. So um, this is both my official and my unofficial answer. I think the problems that I find with with a discussion like that, that we often bring then very extreme um, examples. Your example with Jesus, you know, overthrowing the table, it doesn't mean that as pacifist you're not necessarily an angry person or that you can't be an angry person. And that you wouldn't be struggling about thinking whether you could defend your family or whether you would be defending your family. As a pacifist or somebody who is committed to nonviolent um, action, this is your way of life. That doesn't mean that you are completely, I mean, we are human and we are fallible, as we know, that in some situations we might also uh, do acts of silence. It's just this idea of, I believe in a world where nonviolent action is the way forward. This commitment to nonviolent actions actually did a lot of good in the world. I mean, if you think about in the 20th century, the sanctuary movement of um, smuggling, I was um, involved myself of smuggling people from war zones into safer zones. I mean, already this, this makes me angry as a pacifist that I need to smuggle someone out of a war zone to bring into safety. I mean, what kind of world do we live in that only people committed to nonviolent action would actually consider something like that? Um, um, or, for example, you know, the underground railway that was also led by Quakers and people committed to nonviolent action. So I think that there were a lot of successes and a lot of long-term change springs out of a commitment of nonviolent action. And I think as, as somebody committed to pacifism, you take the long view rather than the short view. What you would do in an individual situation, I, I would hope that I would stick to nonviolent action, but you never know if something faces you, how you respond to it. On the general principle of a commitment to nonviolence, I think I would certainly go along with that. You said that um, there's a tendency to quote extreme examples, you know, immediately go to Ukraine. But I, I think actually the experience of, of humanity has been of living under fairly extreme forms of violence for a great proportion of, of human existence. These, these are not exceptions. These, these are almost normative uh, in the big arc of history. And we have to come up with some principles which, which help people think about their behavior when their own life or the life of their their nearest and dearest is is under threat. I, I'm not sure that I'm ready to argue that there are no circumstances in which that is morally justifiable at all. 
There's a difference there between the two of you. One thing I want to tease out is the particular Christian dimension. You mentioned Gandhi, of course, famously, the assault march to the sea and these nonviolent marches. Um, the Christian pacifism seems to be, because I, I don't know if there's much of a strand within the Jewish world or the Muslim world. I'm not familiar with it. But within the Christian world, there is something about a forgiveness element to it. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing, whether it's Jesus on the cross or some of the civil rights marches uh, under Martin Luther King. There was almost an element of forgiving somebody for the the attack they were about to do on you. Am I right there? Is there something specifically Christian in that, would you say? I think there's a big debate in the uh, Britain yearly meeting about it, right? We are divided on it. So I think that makes us so strong as a community because we do accept spiritual diversity. Hence, forgiveness is a really huge word for us. But I think what you're just saying, Gandhi and Martin Luther King, of course, our biggest examples, but there are so many others. But I don't think Gandhi forgave the British, you see. I wouldn't um, want to speak for Gandhi um, because I think there's a divided opinion on it. I think that there is something here with the, with the forgiveness that's interesting to unpack because I think the, the idea, is, as a pacifist, of course, the idea is that you take the suffering others might inflict on, on, on you, right? And then you will forgive for, for, for that suffering. So I guess forgiveness is, is not a public act. It is it's a private act of saying, okay, I accept that suffering may be done to me, but um, I, I won't carry this to, to the grave with me. And I think this is something that you find in Gandhi's right writings and in his private writings that love really is it is endless and I think this is where we are coming back to a Christian theology again which is based on love that is endless and never-ending right I mean this is exactly at the core of the teaching of Jesus Christ and you see the same thing in Martin Luther King of course who then got shot because of his activism but who was very much committed to nonviolent action introduced by actually a Quaker again so this is really really interesting that you see a little of our thoughts coming in from Gandhi to a Quaker and that Quaker then moved and wrote an influential book that influenced Martin Luther King because he could have gone the other way too but this great leader chose nonviolent action because he knew that we needed to break that cycle of violence that you were also talking about him Miriam's kind of spelt out, really, the whole theological horizon behind this. I don't see any inconsistency between your example of Jesus overthrowing the tables of the money changers and a basically non-violent approach. I mean, he wasn't taking up arms against people. I don't think non-violence um, excludes profound indignation and anger about injustice, about the things that damage human beings. Indeed, I don't think it's possible to be pacifist without experiencing that indignation. Um, I think that that was true of Gandhi. You say, did he forgive the British? Well, he was very clear that, as Miriam said, if you don't get beyond that hatred, you, you end up being a prisoner of it. And Mandela discovered that in all those years in prison. All the great leaders and reconcilers, I think, have come broadly from the same position. Of course, you wouldn't say that Mandela was a pacifist, but let's leave that hanging for... No, I wouldn't. Let's leave that hanging for a moment. 
But uh, can I just say something about the, the anger issue here? And I do think that's really important. Thank you for bringing that out again. It requires an extreme amount of discipline to sit on the street and be beaten up like the people that we saw during the freedom rights. You know, sometimes I feel like when people say, oh, are you a pacifist? They immediately see me in their mind as like this hippie who only wears Birkenstocks and uh, smokes a lot of dope. No, that's not true. Pacifists are very disciplined uh, people, as we see with Gandhi, Martin Luther King. Well, I may not be a pacifist, Miriam, but I am a disciplinarian. <laughs> We've reached the halfway point of the show. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My subject, turn the other cheek. And my guests, Tim Stevens and Miriam Kalachi. In the recent edition of Naked Reflections called Hatred, the philosopher Arif Ahmed challenged the idea of turning the other cheek by posing this interesting question. Do you think that hatred is, is a sort of energising capacity in the way that love is as well? So that's one thing philosophers have sometimes said, is that what's positive about these really strong feelings is that, you know, without them, you perhaps don't have the energy or the force of character or whatever it is to achieve your aims, whereas hatred can actually be very, very useful. Implicit in what Arif says is the notion that we cannot govern our behaviours by rationality alone. So it sounds like you both acknowledge this, that, that you can't live your life through simply reasoned behavior. There is more to it than that, whether it's spirituality or some kind of impulse. Would that be fair to say? You could frame it in terms of sort of left brain and right brain rationality against intuition and so on. Um, human beings are more than just animated computers uh, where you feed in a certain amount of data and out comes an automatic decision. And I think it's very difficult to argue that these days. It's partly about spirituality, it's about the imagination, it's about all kinds of things are the processes by which we come to um, decisions, uh, come, come to insights, come to what we might call truth. Certainly the Hebrew scriptures, you know, explore that quite a lot. Is it the prophets with their appeal to people's emotions in many ways or or the kings who are the people who lay down the law and and fix things and in the gospels you know there's the story of people coming past over to jerusalem asking the greeks come asking to see jesus it's as if that's an encounter between the platonic world of greek philosophy and whatever jesus is seen as representing in the first century mediterranean world we need rationality, but we need more than rationality as well. Okay, again, I'm going to jump in here and, and just try and be devil's advocate. It's my role today. And this is to tease out sometimes the, the term passive-aggressive. Um, sometimes used as a pop psychology. Uh, it's quite fashionable. But isn't passivity sometimes aggressive? We recently had a show uh, on um, the music of protest. And one of the things that struck me uh, and listeners will remember is that sometimes the tune itself, not just the lyrics, but the tune itself is an act of, of aggression or at least perceived aggression by those it's targeting. So can passivity itself be an aggressive act? I think often silence is also, I mean, this is my academic topic, silence is often also equated with passivity 
behavior. And I think there are many beautiful ways of, you know, silent resistances. Um, I have a student at the moment working on slave records, right? There's this one really beautiful example of a slave just counting her breath while she's working. And she saw that as, as an act of resistance because she could count her breath while she was working for her slaveholder. Um, so I think before we're talking about passive aggressiveness and music, uh, silence surrounds music, I think we need to make that point that silence and passiveness is not the same thing, right? But I do agree that there is ag- aggression and passiveness in how we hold back. I think this is a really uh, interesting question. I don't suppose we'll get to the bottom of it. I'm intrigued that uh, the last week of uh, Jesus' life before the crucifixion is described as the passion narrative, uh, when it, it all focuses not on the action of Jesus, but on that which is done to him. And it's in the being done to that uh, Christians would argue the salvation of the world is wrought. Now, that's a huge theological claim, but there's, there's something really important in that, something about patience, something about the loving passivity. I always thought the passion, Tim, the passion of Christ or the passion of Jesus is more about the suffering of Jesus. So it, it is about suffering, but it is also about passiveness or passivity in the sense that if you look at that holy week in Jesus's life, he is the object of other people's aggression and doesn't return it. He transforms it into something which can be seen by some people in the story as love. Um, And that is, a Christian would argue, the point at which the transformation of human history takes place. Because what you see in that moment is the nature of God's love for all human beings. So I think there is a connection there between the passion of Christ and this notion of passivity. I have to say, I think the phrase passive aggression is used an awful lot in pop psychology, but it can mean all kinds of different things. I kind of identify it as the behavior of my son when he was 14, really. It's kind of folded arms, set facial expression, and general antipathy to just about everything that's going on. You touched on earlier, Miriam, your book on the Armenian genocide and the the use of blank pages, which on the one hand is emptying yourself out, to put it in Christian parlance, uh, but on the other, an extremely powerful symbol of what you can and can't say. It was inspired by my time here in Cambridge, Mary Edwards. And I came home and I said, OK, I really want to do something. I want to write something um, on Armenian genocide but of course that wasn't possible but I wanted to engage in a conversation with people who both acknowledged the Armenian genocide and who denied the genocide and and I thought a blank page would be the best way of engaging with those people and I had a couple of experiences actually reading it I mean of course it got then forbidden um, and then we published it in underground but I had a few really interesting experiences and one of them was in Armenia when I was chosen as somebody coming from Turkey to work in the Armenian Genocide Museum. And my editor invited me to read it in a museum in Armenia. And um, so I read it in silence, of course, because there's nothing in there. And after the lecture, um, it was 250 people there, um, and I heard a lot of crying in, in the audience. And after the lecture, a woman came and said, when I saw you sitting on a stage up there, 
and you were the first person from Turkey I've ever encountered my in my life. I think I would have judged you if I said something, but somehow in the silence, we were able to meet each other. And silence is an uncomfortable place, isn't it, Tim? You know, as a minister of religion, um, that when you have that moment silence, within a few seconds, the coughing and the spluttering starts in the pews because people are uncomfortable. Well, talkative Christianity gets in the way. That's the trouble. We use far too many words. But one of the most moving examples I've had is going to the Community of Reconciliation at Teze in, in France, founded after the war as people were escaping from Germany and so on. Um, but at the heart of the worship there, often with 5,000 young people in, in the church in Teze, is a long silence, 10 minutes or so where the whole community just sits absolutely still. What I think is really important with silence, I mean, this is what Luigi Nonno, an Italian composer, once said, silence is a way to go beyond yourself. One thing that struck me in terms of power and in terms of passivity uh, is the reading of names. Oh, very much so. I was at, um, in King's College Chapel on the Sunday of Remembrance and they read the names of the fallen from the college just quietly into the silence and the darkness of that candlelit chapel. It was immensely powerful. And th these were names that, you know, could not have been known to anybody in the chapel and, and who died two or three generations ago. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the reading of the names at Ground Zero in New York to memorialize the people who died on 9-11. 3,000 names read out over a long period of time, but it's, it, it, it is a, it's an act of witness as well as an act of remembering. It's an act of resistance, I think. We're coming to a close, and I, it seems to me that you both feel that turning the other cheek is uh, an example of great strength. Is it ever a weakness? I would say it's an example of strength. I would say it's part of a lifetime's practice of forgiveness. When Jesus says you must not forgive seven times, you must forgive 70 times seven. What he's saying is this is a habit you have to get into. It's an instinct that has to develop in you. And that as it does, you're growing, Jesus would have said, into the likeness of God who is merciful. And that, I think, takes, takes us very close to the heart of all the Abrahamic faiths, that turning the other cheek is the practical outworking of the inner construction of the habit of forgiveness every moment of every day for a lifetime. You couldn't say it better. Um, let me play the devil's advocate here. Um, I think it can be a weakness. If you now consider if somebody turning the other cheek and then, you know, you might be inclined to also looking away, but I think you need to look where the violence is coming from. And I think a lot of people forget that. They're turning the other cheek and then they just stay there and they look no longer. We see that a lot when an accident happens or when something else happens or the news are happening. I would say turn the other cheek and then turn around straight away look the person or the situation in, in into the into the eye or look at it and um and see what you can do actively make a difference that's the message of this week's naked reflections alongside of course turning the other cheek thanks to my guests tim stevens and miriam kalachi and thanks to you for listening you might want to browse the naked reflections archives where you can find miriam reflecting on silence and tim 
talking about wisdom. Talking of wisdom, do check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.